Well, really, it was Paul who'd been on a train journey or a plane journey with Mal Evans and come up with this idea of Sgt. Pepper. And he was just kind of... To, to me, we were just in the studio to make the next record and he was going on about this idea of, um, you know, some fictitious band. Sgt. Pepper is Paul after a trip to America and, and the whole West Coast long-named group thing was coming in. You know, when people are no longer the Beatles or the Crickets, they were suddenly Fred and his incredible shrinking grateful aeroplanes, right? It was going to be boring to just make another Beatles album and we'd stopped touring. We now have this huge liberated opportunity. We could do anything we wanted. I went on a trip to America and came back and had this idea on the plane. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It was all very uh, Uncle Joe's medicine show with uh, dancing bears and uh, elixir of life. You know, those kind of jokey titles. The song when we first got it together, was Dr. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and we were quite pleased with this, you know. And then we found out that Dr. Pepper was a trade name in, uh, for a well-known drink in America, so we thought, well, we can't use that because they'll sue the backsides off us, you know, for using their name. I'm sure they'd have been delighted with one of the Beatles writing a song about it, but we went through a whole list. It was General Pepper, it was, you know, got down to... Sergeant Pepper, Sergeant Pepper, that's the one, right? Sergeant Pepper's Lonely High School Band. So I just thought, oh, well, you know, if there was a band, what would be a mad name for it? Because I just, I threw those words together, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, uh, as one of those band names. And then took the idea back to the guys in, in London. I said, I've, you know, I had this idea where... As we're trying to get away from ourselves, get away from touring, get, a, get into a more surreal thing, how's about? Each track would be linked, you know, because we really thought we'd spend time on an album and just do a great show. Everything about the album we, will be imagined from the perspective of these people. So it doesn't have to be us, it doesn't have to be the kind of song you want to write, it could be the song they might want to write. You know, he had this song, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Arts Club Band, and he, he, he was kind of identifying it with the band, the Beatles themselves. And the, the, I think we recorded the song first, and then the idea came to make it into a, an idea for the, for the album, which was also triggered by Neil, Neil Aspinall, who said at that time... Why don't we have Sergeant Pepper as the comper? You know, he comes on at the beginning of the show, introduces the band, right... And then at the end of every Beatles show, Paul always used to say, it's, uh, you know, it's time to go, you know, we've got to go to bed, and, uh, you know, this is our last number. You know, do the last number and go. And uh, I said to, to Paul, why doesn't Sergeant Pepper come on at the end of the album and say, you know, well, that's it, we've got to go, you know, here's our last number, right? And uh, send the album on tour instead of the band, right? So... Uh, we like that idea.
Welcome to this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm John Stone. Previously on When They Was Fab, the making of Sergeant Pepper. Swore Mandela. And now... So George Martin starts with Pepper. He's very much enjoying playing the tracks of Pepper. We get Paul's isolated vocal for the first time. Listen to this. You've got sawdust in his voice there. We've heard the whole thing in recent years, but it still just blows me away. Yeah. The, what George Martin describes as the sawdust in his voice. And then four French horns and the audience punctuating the whole thing. This is one of those times where he, he plays with the faders and you hear things isolated. And I listen very closely to when he pulls up the vocals on the chorus because I've always heard rumors that David Crosby is on backing vocals. Yeah, there's photos of Crosby at the sessions, but right. I don't believe it. Well, I don't know. Someone had claimed they actually had a bootleg tape, but it never actually came out. I don't think it actually exists. Okay. But there were photos, and Crosby could sing, could see it totally. And like Dear Prudence, they did not hesitate to bring in anybody who could sing. Right, right. You sing this part. It's not proven, but I want to believe it in my heart. Well, we can pull up the isolated vocals, and maybe someone can tell us whether they hear David Crosby or not. Right. George Martin comments on that. And together with the audience and the horns, it's an exciting thing saying, come and join our show. Listen to us. We're a great band. Now that sounds like George Martin. <laughs> We're a great band. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Later on, Ringo does an imitation of George Martin, and boy, does he hit it spot on. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, lads. <laughs> the next recording was Northern Song. Northern Song, kind of a, a little diatribe about Northern Songs, which was the Beatle Publishing Company to which he was contracted at the time. And this version actually is not the one that everybody knows. It's much more biting and complains about his abilities. I mean, it's kind of a weird song to listen to, which... I'm certain it's why somebody, I mean, they only worked on it for two sessions, and the first session was just the backing tracks. And I think the title was called Not Known. So then the next day he puts on the vocals, and then that's the last time they worked on it until after Sgt. Pepper. If you're listening to this song, you may think the chords are going wrong But they're not We just wrote it like that When you're listening late at night You may think the band are not quite right It doesn't really matter what chords I play, what words I say, what time of day it is, as it's only another song. 
It doesn't really matter what clothes I wear, what words I pair, or if my hair is brown. Cause it's only another song. If you think the harmony is a little dull and out of key. changes the lyrics to make it a little less biting and then they throw on everything in the world onto the backing track and then say that's for the film (laughs) doesn't really matter what chords i play what words i say or time of day it is right then we move on to to lucy lucy in the sky with diamonds everybody knows the story about the julian and his drawing yeah right and they cover that here but it's always been part of the canon that the imagery of it was from Alice in Wonderland. I think Hunter Davies mentions that that John liked Lewis Carroll, but there had been a BBC show at Christmas. Jonathan Miller was a UK actor, director, and writer who was known for his sense of sardonic humor and darkly surreal style. He gained much of his popularity as one of the key writers and performers of a surreal satire play entitled Beyond the Fringe. However, his production of Alice in Wonderland would perhaps become his best-known piece. The subject matter was an absolutely perfect field for his sense of style and wit. The production was a quote-unquote television play made for the weekly drama anthology series The Wednesday Play. Right around the time that John was writing, and it had all of his friends in it. Peter Sellers, Peter Cook, Wilfred Bramble from Hard Day's Night, Leo McKern from Help, Ravi Shankar did the music. Miller wanted to create a more adult version of the story that could appeal to grown-ups and serious critics in a way that perhaps versions like the 1951 Disney movie could not. I'm certain he watched it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do still believe it. The title came from Julian's drawing, but yeah, you're right. Oh, absolutely. That's what got him back into the Lewis Carroll mode. Exactly. I just thought that was an interesting. It's something that people don't talk about much. Right. That it's like the, the Thunderbirds thing in Yellow Submarine. <laughs> right. That there was a Yellow Submarine in Thunderbirds, which was right around the time that Paul was writing Yellow Submarine. We move into a segment which the Disney Channel was uncomfortable with at the time and actually cut segments of. It starts with a kind of a weird flyover of the roof of Abbey Road with no explanation. Right. You don't know why they're there. <laughs> you have to know the story to go, oh. But what I found weird is that this was placed here in the midst of the Lucy stuff when this hall took place at a session for getting better. 
Although drugs and okay, if we're going to talk about acid, Lucy is as good a place as any to be talking about acid. Right. But if you put it after Lucy, it could be in the place of where getting better is. Yeah. This is- and still kind of be connected to Lucy. It's just weird that they placed it there in the editing. Ringo tells the story. He took an aspirin, you know what I mean? It turned out to be something else. Then they took him up on the roof. And then the other three had to go chasing after him to make sure he didn't fall off the roof again as we discover from get back they did not have railings on roofs in britain at the time you know then george says at that point the session was in effect over then we get a really nice bit where again george martin is telling us just how simple the basis of the song is he's sitting there at the piano just playing a handful of notes they were able to conjure up a wonderfully evocative image with very sparse material. And the opening to Lucy is a, is a really case in point. It's, just, it's a most wonderful phrase. I think, you know, if Beethoven had been around, he wouldn't have minded one of those. One of those meaning this little melody that he was playing. It's a great little scene. They, uh, play a little bits and pieces and you hear John's vocal. And Now we get Paul with George Martin at the board. We get the story we now know about how Paul liked doing his bass lines last. There was no bass on the version of Lucy that they're playing on the board. And so, yeah, well, I like to do bass lines last because it allowed me to think about them. It allowed me to, to get real melodic with the bass. Suddenly someone is there at the turnstile The girl with kaleidoscope Go for it! Hey! Then we get more about drugs. Uh, Paul trying to back off a little bit. I think the only difficulty about talking honestly about that period is that now the drug scene is a much heavier thing. And if you're now in any way seen to incite uh, or advocate drug taking, you're now talking about crack, you're now talking about glue sniffing, you're now talking about life-threatening things. So I, I don't actually like doing it because of that. It can easily be misconceived. Dad grass. That's funny that you think that he was backing off. I thought he was trying to just explain his position. Well, as opposed to George, you know, George is sitting there saying... It mightn't have affected creativity to, for other people. I know it did for us, and it did for me. I mean, the first thing, I mean, that people who smoked marijuana um, and were into music is that somehow it focuses your attention better on the music. And so you can hear it clearer. Or well, that's how it appeared to be. Um, you can see things, you know, or you could see things much different. I mean, LSD was something else, you know, it wasn't just, I mean, Marijuana was just like having a couple of beers, really, but LSD was like more like going to the moon. He specifically says about that about pot. Marijuana was just like having a couple beers. LSD right. was like going to the moon. Right. It's <laughs> but I, I just felt like Paul's position was thought out. I mean, it was if you're going to explain that part of your life without just completely denying it, it's a cognizant explanation of it was a different time. Things were pure and drugs were pure. You know, Owsley acid, you didn't have the fear of that as you would some modern drugs. And then I like his description that when they would use it was not when they were writing. It would be later listening in the evening, you know, 
that the little wine might come out and this this and that might come out. Just listening back and trying to see, well, what about this and what about that? As he says, you wouldn't want to get high when you're driving down to Weybridge. Right. That all makes absolute sense. Right. They weren't Keith Richards, for God's sake. <laughs> That's one major difference between Get Back and the Sergeant Pepper sessions. <laughs> George Martin talks about the competition between John and Paul. I'm not sure why he's really talking about it here. Bad editing. <laughs> then it goes into with little help again he's playing with the faders we learned that the whole song is just five notes all within one little phrase which was all in those notes terribly simple terribly effective and he says at one time you know john paul always wrote a song for ringo it was like no they did not they wrote if you got troubles and that failed, they wrote Yellow Submarine and they wrote a little help from my friends and good night. Yeah. And then by that point, Ringo was writing for himself. So, right. So, you know, before then it was old rock standards, boys yeah, and matchbox. Yeah. And, they would actually write much more for Ringo after the Beatles. <laughs> exactly. It's just one of those things where he kind of thinks because there are a couple of them that they always did that. So the original line was, um, what would you do if I sang out a tune? Would you, would you throw, uh, would you stand up and throw tomatoes at me, or would you throw tomatoes at me? And I, I would not sing that line, tomatoes at me, because uh, I hated the line anyway. And in those days, they used to throw all sorts of stuff at us on stage, <laughs> and uh, I didn't want this to become a habit either. And I, I just hated the line, so I refused to sing that line, tomatoes. So they changed it. Um, would you stand up and walk out on me? We don't have a demo of little help right not that i know of and the first studio version doesn't have the throw tomatoes at me line so it had to have disappeared pretty quickly <laughs> well if you really didn't like it it probably disappeared the first time they played it for him okay maybe it was just there and it's like no i'm not singing that no i'm not gonna do that the memories of the jelly beans slash jelly babies were too recent for him to right and it's almost like a curse can you imagine him playing that at 80 years old and people <laughs> still throwing tomatoes. <laughs> okay. Then we get a little section where George Martin talks about his own role that by the time of pepper, he was a realizer of their ideas. Right. I like George Harrison's quote there. I think the role with George became easier because at first he was like, to us, we were kind of frightened because he, we were just nervous kids and he was like this big school teacher sort of person who we had to, um, f find and have a relationship with. George was like the big cheese. He would come in as the producer. And we were, you know, all a little, uh, not afraid, but, you know, he, we knew he was the man. And, uh, and he was very good and he was very humorous. So, I mean, that's how George really got into our good books because we were very tight. You know, the little four of us were really tight together and uh, very seldom did we let anybody in. George Martin was the fifth Beatle. <laughs> yeah, by that point, he was part of the team. Now, George Harrison said in a very Python manner, he was a straight man and we were the loonies. You know, about that time, they had been together for five years, working on hit album after hit album. And the pictures from the Pepper Sessions, it's very relaxed. Clearly, Martin is working with them. They were a team. I mean, you can't do Day in the Life and not be a team like that. And not just that. 
because we're coming up on one song that I think is tremendous. It skips over a couple songs and, and it takes us over into uh, Within You Without You, another one where playing the faders gives you a whole new insight into Within You Without You. Right. And this is the one I was talking about. Martin's work on this, it really makes the song and you can really see it when you play with the faders because what was there george playing sitar and a couple other players i think here we had the derubas on two and our english instruments joining in on track three but george answering on sitar here it is it's just really not much we now have both the Western version and the Eastern version of Within You Without You. Right. It's, you know, fascinating to compare the two. You know, what are the violins doing versus what are the, the Dil Rubas doing? Yeah, I think it's just tremendous work. Listening on the headphones is mind-blowing. And you hear them separately, you would never guess how well they go together. Yeah. They're fascinating by themselves, but it's like, well, gee, does that work? And then, like you say, you put on the headphones and it's like, Oh, wow. Yeah. Now that we have a full Atmos mix, it just blows you away. I can understand sometimes Martin's assessment that he gave George kind of short shrift a lot of the time. And you could go, yeah, well, yeah, but not on this one. No, no, not at all. Among the things that George Martin comments on while he's playing the faders. And pizzicato strings accompanying him. That's very cool. Yeah. Bit of slurpy cello. Doing the same thing as the dual rover. Again, kind of going back to what was in Strawberry Fields. Right. And then George George Harrison singing the line in exactly the same way, swooping around in the manner that the dual rover does. You hear his voice, you hear the dual rover. It's all just really fascinating to me. And George Harrison tells us that Within You, Without You is just my way of trying to make a Western pop song using some of these instruments, uh, which is interesting when you think about what was he telling Ravi at the time? And, you know, what did he say about Norwegian Wood, that Norwegian Wood wasn't really an Indian song. It was just me trying to accompany John. Right. And, and it was. And you can't say, wow, that's really impressive from an Indian music point of view. It's, you know. Yeah, Norwegian Wood is just a handful of notes on the sitar. But Within You Without You, the whole thing comes together. It's not an Indian song. It's not a Western pop song. It's something different. Well, you know, on Love You Too, the Indian instruments are played by the Asian music circle in London. But the sitar on Within You Without You is George. And you can tell he spent some time in India. And it learned some things. His technique and, and even his understanding of the music is so much more developed. The slurpy strings are kind of one of the things that George Martin did. He did it in several songs. We lead out of that with George Martin telling us that George and his jaw sticks, which I've heard any number of comments of people who got a little bit tired of the jaw sticks burning all the time. Oh, uh, right. But, but George Martin says, well, they were okay because they covered the smell of the pot, which is a little bit ironic because he tells us earlier in the film oh no no they, they never smoked in front of me i didn't even know what was going on I, I just knew that they went into the bathroom and they came out 
happy. So it's like, which is it, George? Well, maybe you could smell it and you didn't know what it was, only in retrospect. Oh, one of the other things I wanted to say is you listen to Within You Without You and imagine Mickey Most or Nori Paramore, anybody else producing this music or even Mike Leander arranging it. It's so unique and really kind of moves you along so that when you hear the second side of Yellow Submarine, you're already kind of familiar with his style. I, just, I, I think of Pet Sounds in my head, then I think of Sgt. Pepper's, and I think, gosh, you know, that's not... That, those two albums aren't very alike at all, only in that they're very creative. As it moves into a little discussion of Brian Wilson, which I'm not sure it doesn't really fit here, but I guess it kind of figured we've got to throw this in somewhere. I guess they're getting ready to discuss the sound of the album because that's really the connection. I think Pet Sounds uses a lot of harmonicas. And Paul talks about that. What they really appreciated was the deep bass harmonica that Brian Wilson used. Right. But there are also, you know, harpsichords and percussion stuff. So the sound of it. And so they had to kind of talk about Brian Wilson. And they play a little bit off of Pet Sounds where, where Brian Wilson is talking about. Well, I, I remember doing, I, I combined an organ with, with the guitar and what a sound. It really worked great. We got them so that they were absolutely enhancing each other. It was like, it was like a miracle, a miraculous process. Right. The two instruments were just enhancing each other and sort of building up this sound. And the Beatles did that on Sgt. Pepper for sure. You know, Brian says that the he didn't think that the two albums aren't very alike at all. But he says that Pet Sounds is inspired by Rubber Soul. And I don't think those two albums sound very alike at all either. <laughs> it's just kind of a concept and an attitude. It's Rubber Soul, Pet Sounds, Revolver, Good Vibrations, Pepper. That's the order that that goes in. And I can kind of see how Good Vibrations was something that they were at least thinking of when they went into Pepper. Right. But I do like what Paul says there, that it's a really clever album, Pet Sounds. We were inspired by it, and we even nicked a few ideas. Then we move into Mr. Kite. We get a possibly slightly overlong version of the story about John finding the poster and how all the lyrics are in the poster. Right. Although George Harrison does have an interesting statement, particularly in light of how John's future writing would go. That's how you do it. You write it down and remember it. You know, John was that advanced. He knew that everything could be put into a song. And he was right. Then we get the faders on Mr. Kite. George Martin, as he's playing around with the different backing bits, he and John had kind of two different visions. He was thinking about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and John was thinking about the, the little tootie magic roundabout kind of organ. Right. I, I think they used them both, kind of. I think he says that. They kind of mixed them together as appropriate. And along with that is the little tootie backing on this track, track four. And that's it. The splendid time is guaranteed for all. Then, you know, as they're playing the various other things, he brings up what he calls the whirly bits, the melange of tapes. Although he doesn't tell his story about throwing them up in the air and sticking them back together with tape and dipping them in Coke. Right. That's him being funny, you know, dipping them in Coke. And it's interesting to note that Jeff Emmerich says that actually occurred on Yellow Submarine. And, that- and then we get Phil Collins 
why we get Phil Collins, I'm not quite sure. He was a pop star, and I guess he was around and available. It opened a door and showed everybody that there was another room and uh, that you could all play around in that other room and actually it could still be called a commercial record. And that was the key. It kind of opened it up. Now you could kind of do everything. You know, you could do a an opera. There's no difference between what is a pop record or a record that can sell and a record that is interesting. Right. The thing about Phil Collins, when this came out, Phil Collins was the guy. He's the drummer. Good morning, good morning. The best to you each morning. Sunshine breakfast, Kellogg's cornflakes, crisp and full of sun. Then George Martin again tells us that this was very typical of John's songwriting. They actually show a bit of Meet the Wife, which I had never seen before I saw this special. I knew it was a soap opera on British television, but it's like, oh, okay, that's what that is. George Martin talking about John's songwriting. When he talks about time signatures, we get this periodically, but it's the way he puts it here, that John would have a 3-4-4-4 or 5-4 bar in order consecutively and not even know it. Right. John just knew how the song was supposed to go. He does a lot in his work. Time signatures are one of John's things. And of course, he even comments it on the lyrics. You know, somebody needs to know the time. Glad that I'm here. <laughs> right. George Martin then tells us. This tune itself is quite simple. George Martin thinks every tune on Pepper is simple. Maybe he is taking credit for it, huh? <laughs> but it was full of accents all over the place and then he goes through the end section each animal was capable of either devouring or frightening the one before it and we had a whole string of them here look. it took a long time an old story by now. Then Ringo, in addition to telling his usual story about, well, it took me months, I learned to play chess on Pepper. I found this really kind of interesting, that part of what he was doing there was that he was playing conga drums, he was playing maracas. And I'm not a percussionist, you know. That's another field of drums. And all that stuff sort of came on at the end. So there was a lot of huge gaps. Well, maybe they needed Ray Cooper there. <laughs> right. And this was really kind of a, a big opening a difference for him well you know he plays congress on day in the life and he does on getting better you know there, there's stuff he he was doing that he didn't do on any other album you know you don't see all that kind of work on revolver as ringo describes his playing he kind of changed styles between albums but it was only when he got to pepper that everything kind of came together yeah then we go into the cover I, you know, I guess they don't want to go right into Day in the Life since that's the big thing. Cover art in the, in the middle 60s hadn't really been exploited up to, up to Pepper. And um, when the boys decided what they wanted, they wanted really to put all of their heroes on the album in some form or another. And um, by recruiting Peter Blake, who was a, an avant-garde artist again, to assemble the, their ideas and realise them in the same way that I was realising the music, they did, a, I think, a, a pretty smart thing. Peter Blake? I think what happened straight away was that it was, it was very mysterious. I mean, the, the, it was like a game. There were quizzes to, to see if you could spot who everyone was. And, of course, nobody could. And I think a kind of cult built up around it. And then, um, you know, the, the, the myths and, and stories that, that built up around it, it became um, 
an interesting talking point, I think. You know, I, I've heard that so many times that the thing about Pepper was you know, people would go out and buy records and you know, sit on the bus and not be able to get home for hours and hours, or well, maybe not hours and hours, maybe an hour, and that all they could do during that time is take the record out and look at the cover, and that Pepper occupied them for that whole period of time. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Uh, we'll provide a link back during the 50th a couple years ago. Some people have gone and tracked down the original source of every cutout on the Pepper cover. It's, it's really cool stuff. Not every cutout. They're still looking for stuff, aren't they? I think they got pretty close. At the end of the article, they asked for help for locating a couple. Okay, so the, at last count, it was pretty close. They have quite a bit. The funny thing that I got out of the article is that when it was all over, the things that made up that collage went different places. You know, apparently the Beatles themselves had a thing for statuary because, you know, they had gnomes and statues from their homes. So they obviously went back to their homes. But a lot of that stuff was privately collected or given away or whatever. So <laughs> what I found interesting is that the original cover cost 3,000 pounds to make. And in that article, four things from that cover have sold at auction for about 90,000 pounds. Wow. <laughs> the original cutouts, you still see them coming up for sale occasionally. And those usually go for several thousand pounds a piece. Yeah. I think the uh, Deanna Doors thing sold for 15,000 pounds. The Welcome to the Rolling Stones doll sold for 13,000 pounds. So Paul gets the last word on the cover. I think we just thought uh, we'll do the best we can in this very far out new way that we had of thinking. Get it to be something. I still think that is the best philosophy is to really try and please yourself. Okay, Paul, we'll do that. Just please yourself. University of Please Yourself, California. The Ruttles music, meanwhile, had been attracting respectable critical attention. The London Times called it the best since Schubert. Sir Brian Morrison has been Regis Professor of Music at the University of Oxford for the past 30 years. We asked him just how good, musically, were the Ruttles. Stanley J. Cramerhead III, Jr. is an occasional visiting professor of applied narcotics at the University of Please Yourself, California. He is also a keen historian of pop music. We asked him just how good, musically, were the Ruttles. Listen, look at very simply, musicologically and ethnically, the, the Ruttles were essentially empirical melanges of a rhythmically radical, yet verbally passe and temporarily transcended lyrical content, welded with historically innovative melodical material, uh, transposed and transmogrified by the uh, angst of the Rutland ethnic experience, which elevated them from essentially alpha exponents of, in essence, merely beta potential harmonic material, into the prime cultural exponents of Aeolian cadenzic cosmic stanza form. But he didn't really tell us either. <sighs> so we, we go into the final song in the special and the final song on the album, Day in the Life. We, we get more of George Martin with the faders. We get take one, the, what we now know as the Sugar Palm Fairy take. Which starts off pretty much like the record. John was singing while he was playing his acoustic guitar. 
Paul was on piano, George was playing maracas, I think, and certainly Ringo was on bongos. John counts in by saying sugar plum fairy, sugar plum fairy. Yeah, Sugar bone fairy, sugar bone fairy. Sends shivers down the spine. Well, I just had to laugh. I saw the photograph. You hear the whole thing is pretty simple. You got John on one track singing and playing the acoustic guitar. You got Paul on the piano. You got George playing the maracas, and you got Ringo playing the drums. Right. Again, as we were saying with Strawberry Fields, George Martin brings up John's voice, and it's lovely. It's amazing. He blew his mind out in a car. He didn't notice that the lights had changed. Crowd- it's not as good as George Maracas part. <laughs> Then Phil Collins says, you could take any great drummer from today, uh, say I'd like it like that, referring to how Ringo was playing on Day in the Life, and they would have no idea what to do. It's pretty tricky. Darren, a while back, commented that not all of it, but at least some of what Ringo is playing comes off of a song off of Pet Sounds, which is kind of interesting. Not so much what he's playing, but the sound he's getting. From Hal Blaine? So Paul clearly said to Ringo, in this section, I think you should play it like that. Right. Then they go into, well, Paul had written a middle bit, and they just decided to shove it in the middle is what Paul says, <laughs> which is a very Paul thing to say. I mean, that's what he does. We'll make it work, which then leads into the whole bit about the orchestra, but they don't really give us enough time on the orchestra. You know, they just say that... They told me they wanted an orchestral climax to fill these empty bars. A giant orgasm of sound. That's one way to describe it. He said something else for Skay earlier. Something's up with George Martin. <laughs> oh. And with that, we joined up the two parts of the song, which, as you know, isn't quite correct because they don't come on either end of Paul's middle bit. Right. And that's but, the problem with memory. So because we're out of time, we don't get... Lovely stories about Martha and the dog whistle and the backward never to see any other one, which are great pepper stories. We run out groove was just a giggle, really. It was just a silly, silly schoolboy prank, really. I mean, that um, I think it, I think it was probably Paul who said, you know, when you have an automatic record player, the record lifts before you reach the run out groove on the end. But in the old days, before you had an automatic player, the needle would get stuck in that groove and go round and round forever. He said, well, there's never, it was just a terrible sort of hissing noise. Why don't we put some music in that? And so that ever, if ever people don't have the modern machines, they will hear something that will knock their socks off. How that came about was that at the time, record players weren't all automatic. And you'd go to parties and, you know, it'd be late night, a sort of all night party and stuff. And so I want to put a record on. And the record would finish 
and then the little play-out groove, they didn't automatically click off like record players do now. They'd stay on it and go... And often the kind of parties we'd go to, no one would get up for about three hours, so you'd go... What's that? It's the record... Oh, you know, oh, yeah. We decided to kind of employ this fact, you know, and we said, well, look, what if at the end of the playoff thing, if we just make a little loop, a little noise, so it'll go... But we'll put something on that little character. You shouldn't, da da. You shouldn't, da da. You shouldn't. I said, at least for those three hours, we'll have a little something to listen to instead of, you know, if someone fails to turn it on. So we said, all right, giggle, let's do it. So uh, they just went down into the studio. And I said, sing the first thing that comes into your head when I put the red light on. So we just stood around the mic and just chatted for a while. And uh, what do you think about that then, John? Well, fine. And we had a technique for doing that. We could make up silly things like that because I said John was pretty funny and the rest of us had fall in with it all and they did that they hadn't got any prior warning they just each, all, all four of them saying something quite ridiculous and I lopped off about two seconds of it at random and then stuck it round into a circle and laid that in the groove <laughs> Never could be any other. Never could be any other. Never could. And it was just a fragment of conversation. Imagine our surprise when months after the thing had been issued and people had been slightly amazed to find this weird sound on the end, that people had been playing the damn thing backwards and found out that by playing it backwards, there was an obscene word to be heard. We listened to it backwards. It seemed to say something obscene, but we had no idea. <laughs> it's just one of those things. And we also put in a 15 kilohertz note for dogs. Again, a stupid prank. We should imagine there's people sitting around and they think the album's finished and suddenly the dog goes, Ooh! and starts barking and no one will know what the heck's happened, you know. It's brilliant, you know. We'll just put it, so no one will know. Humans won't be able to hear it, so they won't be fussed about it. I don't know what it's at, the frequency, but very high frequency. For dogs that might happen to be listening to Sergeant Pepper. But it was fun to do a thing like that. And um, later on, I believe the vinyl discs had that removed, so that there are quite a few discs who don't have it. George Martin, at the, at the end of this, says, I was wondering if we weren't being a little bit over the top, a little bit pretentious. And my thought was, you mean like backwards things <laughs> played and dog whistles, you know? That might have been a little pretentious, but fun. But it works. I mean, you know, because these boys are the Beatles, they can do it, and everyone will go along with it. Ringo says... Uh, it's just, it was the time, the attitude, it was the concept, the world was trying to change, you know, it didn't quite make it, but it made a small move. It was in the air. I mean, the, you know, for me, the psychedelic years were the most exciting. Because he can't remember any of them. <laughs> <laughs> and then George comes back, and his comment is also interesting. That It's like a period. If you listen to music from the 20s or the 30s, it has a sort of sound to it. And I think, you know, that's important. If you want to listen to, um, you know, something like uh, a Hoagie Carmichael tune, well, it's partly the song that you like, and it's partly the way he did it, and it's also partly the way it was recorded, how the microphone sounded in those days, how the tube amplifiers in the boards, you know, it's all that, that kind of atmosphere, and it becomes a little period piece. The same thing applies to Pepper. Absolutely. Which, as you note, 
just wouldn't be the same if you did it in Pro Tools. Right. Or, or even the difference in the way that Sergeant Pepper sounds against Abbey Road. You listen to the Giles Martin remix of Pepper. Some people don't like it because you cannot recreate the original completely. If you're going to expand it, it's going to sound a little bit different. Do you want it to sound better? Do you want the instruments more crisp and clear? Or do you want the original? But you don't have to make a decision. We have both. (laughs) And that's a hard thing because if Paul were to come to my house and listen to it on my speakers, he'd probably go in, this sounds like crap. You know, <laughs> because you, you just can't re- recreate a thing. Cause what is a, a, the thing, you know, is it the way it sounded coming out of the speakers at Abbey road? Is that how it should sound? Yeah. Particularly since it was really just one big speaker in the middle there. It's like, Oh, stereo. Well, we'll worry about that later. Well, you know, I know people who, who would do a mix and take it out, um, play it in their car. That seems to be a common thing. Yeah, you know. Just because they want to make sure it sounds reasonable when bounced down to that media. Right. So the special ends with one of uh, Paul's more prescient quotes. The musical papers, which you used to read, were started to slag us off because we hadn't done anything, because it took five months to record. And I remember with great glee seeing in one of the papers, oh, the Beatles have dried up. There's nothing coming from them. They've been in the studio. They can't think what they're doing. And I was sort of sitting, rubbing my hands, saying, you just wait. Hindsight there, Paul. <laughs> and that's where the director goes, fade to black. There is no other way to end it, I don't think. <laughs> right. So, like you say, the special has not aged perfectly, but it's still a very good piece of work. And I really kind of wish they'd put it in the pepper box. Yeah, it's really good. Because what we get in anthology is good, but it's it's not this whole thing. Yeah. I really like the, the scenes with George manipulating the faders. That's worth viewing for me. That alone is worth it. Absolutely. And of course, now that George is no longer with us, it just gives you a little bit of warm fuzzies to have him there. <laughs> right. Despite the fact that it's not available legitimately, you can find it. Apple has removed it from YouTube, but... Just do a Google search on it. It'll come up. It's out there. (laughs) Both the Disney Channel version and the original British version are available. So you can find them. Excellent. Yeah. Worthwhile. Look it up. (laughs) All right. You are off on vacation for the next two weeks. I am. I am. Um, Going anywhere interesting? North Carolina. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I guess that's interesting. You have reason to be there, so, you know, it's interesting for you. Yeah. Right, right, family. So have fun without me. Yeah, Lonnie Pena will be here over the next couple of weeks, and Kid O'Toole, we're going to go through the McCartney show in a fine-tooth comb, and then something else the next week. We're not sure what. All right. That, that's worth, our usual MO. Worth listening in, folks. All right. One of us will be back next week, and then we will have you back with us in three, two, one. Very good. Talk to you soon. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. 
Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Sergeant Pepper and his Lonely Hearts Club band and all these other acts. And it was going to all run, you know, like the rock opera. And uh, we got as far as uh, Sergeant Pepper and then Billy Shears. A <laughs> uh, little help from my friends. And then everyone said, ah, sod it. Let's just do tracks. So it started out with its own, you know, that it was going to be something totally different. But it still then kept the title. And, and like uh, also the feel that it's, it's all connected. It's called the first concept album. It doesn't go anywhere. Mr. Kite, all my contributions have absolutely nothing to do with this idea of Sergeant Pepper and his band. But it works because we said it worked and that's how it appeared. Yeah. And it doesn't have a concept. It starts out with Sergeant Pepper and introduces Billy Shears and that's the end apart from the so-called reprise. Right. Otherwise, every other song could have been on any other album. Right. It's the reprise that right. does it. Mr. Kite could have gone anywhere. Lucy could have gone anywhere. A Day in the Life could have gone anywhere. So it's not really, there's no concept there. It really wasn't planned. It wasn't a, a great design. And... Um, Porsey doesn't know what it was all about. Well, it was all about a, a fictitious band, wasn't it? And that was about it. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned out nice again.